good. Well, we're going to be in the book of Luke this morning. As I always say, if you're visiting, really just glad that you're here. Uh, we just very simply, this is really at, at its basic form, a worship service where we like to worship Jesus. And we worship Jesus because he demands and is worthy of that worship. And we do that a number of ways. Some primary ways that you're seeing this morning is through singing songs like we're doing right now that talk about who he is and what he's done and his person and work. We study the scriptures. We love to do that because that, again, declares uh, the greatness of him and what he's done. Um, we're going through the book of Luke right now. It's been a great study to look at and gaze at the life and teachings of Jesus and to be transformed by them, not just to be informed by them. And lastly, we also worship Jesus by giving. Uh, you know we give in the small black blocks in the back, and many of you give online as well. So thank you for your generosity in that way. Um, why don't we pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in, and I'm just going to go over a few uh, family things, too, uh, before we get to Luke. So let's, let's ask God to, to move. God, thank you that, that you are a God that uh, even cared enough to give us your written revelation. God, that you've spoken to us, you've spoken to us through your written word. God, thank you that you speak through creation, you speak through your son. God, we thank you that you transform hearts, that you redeem and make new what's broken. God, we're thankful in a world stained with sin and the sickness of it, that there's hope for us in Christ. God, I pray that you give us greater affections for the cross this morning, greater love for Jesus, greater awareness of our sin and our our desperate appeal to you daily. Uh, God, thank you for the gospel of Luke that in your providence you included in this uh, beautiful scripture. And God, I pray that you'd lead us into uh, more fullness of life because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, grab your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 6. It's where we're going to be this morning. Um, again, I always say if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. We'd love for you to pick up. Keep that. It's our gift to you. You don't have to return it if you don't own one. Uh, hold on to it. And then uh, as you're turning there, just want to have a, a quick dialogue just with uh, the faith family, especially if you're a covenant member here. But here's part of the thing that I try to do regularly. Um, is always pray, always discern, always seek what, what, what does God want us to do, where does he want us to go, how does he want us to align ourselves and, and think and look and what do, we, what do we preach through, what do we, where are the spaces as a, as a church that he wants to refine and build up. And so um, for a number of weeks now, God's just been really uh, impressing through word and prayer just to take four weeks uh, after Labor Day weekend just to walk through the mission statement of this church, okay? And this is Jesus' church, and I think it's really important that we all kind of rally around and understand why God has established us and what he's calling us into. And that mission statement being, which you can read on our website and anywhere else, which is that we exist fundamentally as a church to bring glory to God, and then we, we do that by making disciples, making learners, teaching people, right, to observe all that Christ commanded through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing else shapes us as disciples, nothing else makes us mimic him other than his gospel, his life, his teachings, his work, and then the outflow of that will be locally around us, and then we'll reverberate more globally to the ends of the earth. So we want to make sure that we are clear on that. We thought heading into fall would be good just to take a couple weeks, and then we'll jump right back into Luke. Don't worry, we're not going to uh, escape Luke like I did Genesis, and if you guys are still, still emailing me saying, let's get back there, we will, uh, in God's providence, just pray he'll keep moving and telling me to go there, uh, and we'll go back there, but we'll jump right back into Luke after just probably the, the month of September, uh, just walking through that so we can really see as a church together uh, where God's calling us, where we're going, and, and why we exist, so uh, that'll be great. So just be praying for fruit uh, for that time. And that's just a quick reminder that next week we're not going to be here. We're going to be at the park, at uh, Duck Pond Park. Uh, we're going to be gathering there every year on Labor Day weekend. We don't have this space because there's a group that comes. And so we go gather there and there's food and fellowship afterwards. It's BYOC. Bring your own chair. Uh, make sure you do that unless you want to sit you know, on, the, on the gravel or you want to sit 
Uh, you can bring your dog, sit on your dog. I don't know, a lot of, a lot of different ways you can set up your seat, but uh, bring your own chair for that. Also, we're going to have food and fellowship afterwards. Uh, we're going to eat, so we're going to provide all the subs, utensils, drinks. If you guys could just bring a side for your family, that would be great. So we're going to start uh, that, that vision uh, series just after we get back in here on the 13th. So just be praying for that. Let's go into uh, Luke chapter 6. Uh, which is really, really where I want to settle this morning. And, and here's what we're, we're going to see. We've been seeing over the weeks in the, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus really testified to who he is. And we're seeing Luke write to Theophilus, a Roman official who is uh, probably skeptical of the things of Christianity. And Luke's a physician. He was a co-laborer with Paul. He was one of the ones who just basically finished it out. He was faithful. A lot of people deserted Paul. Luke stayed with him. And he wants to write to make sure that you can see and understand the life and teachings of Jesus, and not just understand them, not just be informed by them, but be transformed by them. Okay, he wants us to look at them, see them, witness them, and then be changed. Okay, we don't want to be people that just leave with bigger heads, we want to leave with bigger hearts. Okay, we want to be people that leave and are, are changed by the transforming person and work of Jesus Christ. So he has been walking through his ministry now, we've seen him inaugurate that, he's been healing and preaching and teaching, and uh, we've been seeing gospel implications of those things, how he heals the lepers, showing that he cares about our sin, he gets involved in our sin that is heinous and dirty and cleans us, that when our crippleness of sin with a paralytic, he can speak forgiveness, something that had never been seen before, where you had to do repayment and penance and blood and sacrifice. Forgiveness is now happening through the one that all those shadows were pointing to, which is Jesus, okay? So Jesus is the hero of the Bible. We see that over and over. He's the one we want you to see, we want you to look at, we want you to know, because he's the reason. Everything that around the scriptures point to. So Genesis to Revelation, you got to see him. Okay, everything points to him, and so that's why we want to gaze and look at him. And so this morning, here's what's interesting that you're going to kind of see roll out. Um, you're going to see him not so much attack immorality, but the seemingly moral. Okay, now here, here's what I mean. I'm not, I'm not saying that God doesn't care about sin and out, outward, you know, that he doesn't call sinners to repentance. He clearly does that. But what's going on is people are buying the lie that the Pharisees and scribes are teaching that you and God are made right by your morality. Okay, so if you behave right, you and God can talk and you can walk right with him. And we've been learning that you can't barter grace, right? Your bankruptcy before God needs to, be, needs to be sealed and taken care of and grace needs to be given to you freely, which is what Jesus does. And so uh, we're going to see that happen this morning, that, that God is not pleased with that, that Jesus is not pleased with that, and he wants to show a correction of how we're given righteousness. Now, now remember, the Pharisees and scribes were not holy. Okay, they were moral. Okay, we got to understand that. Jesus came not to make you moral. He came to make sinners righteous and holy. Okay, there's a big difference. So you can go your whole life just being a morally good person where you do a lot of good things and you read more and you study more and you pray more and you attend church more. But if you haven't been made righteous by Jesus alone through his person and work, you're still damned to hell. Like that's a, still a bad deal. Okay, so whether you're irreligious, religious, licentious, or legalist, it, it doesn't matter. You need Christ. Okay, so he, he's the one who does all that. And he's going to show us here that he is the only thing, the only barometer of righteousness. And we saw, starting in chapter 4, he declared this, right? I didn't come for the spiritually, I came for the spiritually poor, not the spiritually proud. Right? Amen. That's why he came, so that people who were keenly aware of their need for grace could grow up in that grace and see more of him. And they were so outraged by it, what did they try to do? Throw him off a cliff. They tried to kill Jesus, right? Their religiosity, their, their arrogance, their self-righteousness grew in their hearts, indifference to compassion, 
and hatred in their hearts towards Jesus. And so Jesus is going to continue to attack this system of works-based righteousness, this belief that you and God are okay based upon how you behave. And because he does this, tensions are going to keep rising. And these tensions are going to keep rising as we head towards Calvary, okay? Ultimately culminating on the cross. And, and, and here's why. Jesus is speaking the truth. That's why there's tension. That's why there's animosity. Now, you see this in culture and society today, right? They say, hey, 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 just, just give me the truth. And we lay out the truth for them. What do they do? Lash out and freak out. They don't want the truth. Right? We're going, no, no, this, if you understand the scriptures, if you understand how the God of the universe made things to operate in, in a beautiful design to live and work and function in a way that is good, right? it leads to life. He's not, a, he's not a taker, he's a giver, he's a generous God. We see that from Genesis on, how he wants to give life, he wants to give freedom. Right? We're, we're the takers, and so people freak out at the idea of as soon as you speak the truth, people go crazy. They don't really want the truth, they want their formation of the truth. And I'll consistently say people don't believe most of the time, they don't decide what to believe based on what is true. They believe on what they desire. What's your greatest desire? Well, that's what all believe is true. And so Jesus is going to show, no, we're going to lay before it what is true. This is nothing new. We're going to see the same reaction this morning as Jesus speaks the truth to the Pharisees. Chapter 6, verse 1, here's what Jesus says. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, and that's something you do every day, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So, very characteristic of our friends, the Pharisees, right? They pick a fight with Jesus. That's why they're always there, never to listen, never to grow, always to critique and criticize. And so they're with the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes are the big dogs, big theologians. They've been taught. They teach the Pharisees. The Pharisees are under a scribe. They kind of follow him and want to teach everybody else what the scribes teach. And the, the battlefield this morning is the Sabbath, they're picking a fight on the Sabbath because they see Jesus doing something that they think he shouldn't be doing because it doesn't line up with their morality. Okay, now here's just in case you're a little fuzzy on the Sabbath, here's what's good to know. If you go back to Genesis, okay, Genesis 1 and 2, right, Jesus, or well, yeah, Jesus and God fully make the universe, make the heavens, make the galaxies, they make plants, they make animals, they, they create man, they create woman, and then God does something interesting, he creates the Sabbath. God makes it, and he makes it as a day to rest. Then you go later to Exodus 20, and God writes on the tablets of stone with his finger, hey, I work six days, take the seventh day off. Now, he didn't do this because God needs rest. He didn't do it because he was tired. Okay, he's fully sufficient in, in all of that he exists in. He did it to set a pattern for us so that, man, we grow weary and tired. We can just rest in the fact that he's still sovereign, the universe is still working and, and orbiting and we're not in control of it, that he's still God, we're not, so let's rest and rejuvenate to then work again well. And so this is why God made it. There was only one command not to work and to rest. He didn't get into all these particulars. He didn't say, mm, okay, now here's the addendum to all of that as to how that flushes out. Now we're going to see the religious leaders did that. That's why he made the Sabbath. He defined it. And that's why the Sabbath comes to the word to mean, mean to stop, to cease, so God ceased from making and rested to give us a pattern of stopping from working and to rest and rejuvenate. That's all the Old Testament says. And so as we worship God, show compassion and mercy, we rest as he never grows weary. But here, here's what happened. The rabbis through the centuries began to come up with this checkpoint list. They gave an addendum to, well, what does work really mean? 
So they started to add to the scriptures. So you've got the Talmud, right? The, the Jewish basic collection of, of doctrines and literature saying all that you need to do in addition and what it really means to stop working. Okay, and they came up with this huge long laundry list. Now, now here's, here's where you've got to understand. God is a giver, not a taker. He says, hey, this is for man. You should, you should rest. You should enjoy. Enjoy community. Enjoy worshiping God. Enjoy seeing all I've done. Man, rest. Do all of these good things. And then the religious leaders come along and go, hold on. We've got to make a list of impossible rules for you to keep so you can really understand what it means to rest. So you want to take a nap? Well, you've got to figure out what the rules mean to really take a nap. You want to you know, go eat ice cream? What if the ice cream drips on the floor? Can you pick it up? That might be work. I mean, they, insanity. They start just listing out. They have 24 chapters of laws for the Sabbath. And then, and then what happens is you got to memorize these laws, and then you got to obey the laws. If you don't obey the laws, and you're disciplined for not obeying the laws. A harsh, burdening, unbiblical system. Never what God intended, right? And so here's what is happening. I just want to give you a list of a few. It's really fascinating. Just, just a couple examples of restrictions they made. This is only like a few of a thousand, okay? A scribe, if you were a scribe, you couldn't carry your pen, because that was work. You were a student, you couldn't really carry your books around, so it was considered work. You couldn't take a bath, because if the water hit you and hit the floor, you'd have to wipe the, the water off the floor. That was considered work. You couldn't boil an egg. You couldn't tie a knot, so it was too much work. That's just, that's just a few. I mean, you were just in bondage. Couldn't do anything. You couldn't mail a letter. You couldn't light a fire. You want to talk about insanity, right? Can you imagine? Now, there were two exceptions, okay, because you also couldn't heal or alleviate any type of suffering on the Sabbath. A doctor couldn't do that because it was considered work. There were two, though, okay, two exceptions. Praise God for two, right? You got two. One, if it looked like the person was going to die, then, then, then hey, don't wait till Monday. Take care of it now, right? The other was if you're going to have a baby, so, so ladies, could you imagine it being Sunday, you're about to give birth, and the doctor going, can you hold off till Monday? Can you just, can you just wait? I mean, those of you who had, had a baby, you understand that, you'd probably kill the doctor, right? So, so those are the two exceptions, right? We don't want the women mad at us as they're giving birth, right? We want to be able to still survive, and then if someone is going to die, we'll, we'll preserve them and make sure the doctor can help them. So those were some of the restrictions, all burdening. And so let me say this about the Sabbath first before we roll into this text. It's a good thing. God gave it as a gift for man. He says, rest, rejuvenate, have recreation, enjoy community, show compassion and kindness to others. That was the point of it, human necessity and need. We're going to look and see that, too, as we, as we get into this text. That, that's the reason he gave it. And so, and here's the other point. The point is to take a day, okay? So you have the Jewish Sabbath, right, which was Saturday. Then, then we have the Christian Sabbath, which is Sunday. Revelation will call it the Lord's Day because that's when Christ rose. That's when the church starts gathering, okay? And then and somehow in America, we can't figure it out, Saturday or Sunday. So they gave us both, okay? So they gave you, you know, a long weekend. That's kind of nice, sweet deal. So you were five days and you get two days off. So we have this Sunday Sabbath. But what will Paul say in Colossians? Don't let anyone pass judgment on you according to your Sabbath. Those are just shadows to point to the substance, which is who? Christ. So the point is you take a day. So if, if, if you're a Sabbatarian, I guess I'm really evil because I'm working on a Sunday, right? So, so that's when I work. So what's the point for Mike Reed? Not to, not to do my Sabbath on Sunday, but to take a day, which I'm really bad at. I know, I know, you're already, my wife's thinking in her head, yeah, preach it to your own heart, right? So I, I need to learn this. This, is, this was really warming to me. I, I need to find a day of rest, a day to get away and just to enjoy family and community and think of others, and, right? I mean, that's so, so find a day. 
find a day to do that. That's, that's the issue here. And so understanding all of that, here's what's happening in Luke. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. Common. Sometimes there weren't many roads. Sometimes people take a shortcut through the fields, probably like you used to do when you were young. You cut through the backyard of a friend's house, didn't want a neighbor to see you, right? And you'd always run through their bushes and through their garden. And Well, this is better because in Deuteronomy 23, God gave the coolest law. He said, hey, if you're traveling and you walk through a field and you're hungry, it was a provision for someone who was hungry, you can pick the grain and eat it. He never said you could only do that six days a week. He said whenever you pass through. Now, he did say, don't clean the whole thing out, right? He did say, don't take a winnowing fork and just clear it out. Bring your dump truck in and, you know, feed the 5,000. But he did say, hey, when you walk through, you can eat. So the disciples were doing nothing in disobedience to God's law. Jesus was doing nothing in disobedience to God's law. They're walking through. They're picking some grain. They're making some sandwiches because they're hungry. It was a provision made from God. And I always say this, Jesus always fully submits to the scriptures and never to human tradition and law. Okay, so he'll always fully obey God. He doesn't come up with these addendums people make and follow those too. But he'll always follow the scriptures. And so here's what he's doing. He's walking through. They're not disobeying God's law in any way. They're picking grain, making a sandwich. And the Pharisees see them somehow strange. If you even picture the scene where they're like following them around, ducking behind the grain, like, oh, there they are. You know, there's the group, you know, the spies. And, and, they, and they look and they say, hey, they come up out of the grain. Hey, isn't what you're doing unlawful? It's the Sabbath. That's considered work. You're not allowed to make a meal according to our addendum of the Bible. You haven't read it? And so Jesus, I love it, he answers with Scripture, which he always does. And this is an accusation from the Pharisees. This isn't a question. This is a straight indictment on him. Jesus responds using Scripture, verse 3. Jesus answered them, have you not read? I love it. Jesus says that all the time. You want to know why? Because he knows there's nothing they hadn't read in the Old Testament. So it's basically very sarcastic. Really? Really? Have you not read the Old Testament? It says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? How he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? <laughs> so Jesus goes, hey, guys, hold on a second. You remember 1 Samuel 21. You guys know the story. You know, you know when David was running for his life from Saul and he had his men with him and, and they, the, they ended up at the tabernacle and they were starving, they were hungry and they go in and tell the priest, hey, man, we're really hungry, we have, we have no food, we're tired, we've been running, hey, is there, any, is there anything to eat? And the priest goes, well, all I have left is the bread of the presence. Okay, here's what the bread of presence was. Okay, there were 12 loaves of bread that sat on this golden table in the tabernacle okay, for a week. And that was for the Sabbath day when, when they would celebrate that God is provider and we're dependent on God. And then any bread that was not eaten, the priests would eat and they would repeat it on the Sabbath. So they'd take off the old loaves and the priests would finish that off and put new loaves on on the Sabbath. So apparently the priests, it's the Sabbath, they're in there. He's going, well, all I have is the bread that's left over and only the priests eat that. But yeah, I mean, you guys can have it. But that's holy bread. I mean, only the priests are supposed to eat that. What did the priest see? I think something any other human being would see. Human need. Compassion. Kindness. I mean, these guys are starving. These guys are hungry. So the issue here, the, the question that Jesus is getting at is, did David and his men eating bread on the Sabbath, does that mean they sinned? No. Thank you, Eric. No. 
And, and, and here's what Jesus is saying. Human need has always trumped ceremonial ritual. I mean, Jesus is going, hey, I'm much greater than David and all his men. And, and the priest was able to give holy bread that only the priest could eat to them to eat when they were hungry because the Sabbath was actually designed to show compassion and kindness, not just to be self-absorbed and arrogant. So, so can't my men, as I'm the, the maker of the heavens and the earth, which we'll see in a minute, he's going to drop an A-bomb on him, right, saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I made this thing. He's saying, can we not eat because we're hungry? Can, are, are we sinning because we're eating food? The, there's nothing that we're doing that's wrong. You, you never said we could only do this six days a week and on the Sabbath. You said that. God didn't say that. And what's amazing is he's revealing something in them. The Pharisees never care about burdens for people. They're so self-righteous that their compassion is crushed in their indifference towards people. And all they are are consumed with themselves and how they live and how they look. That everyone else is demeaned and on JV and they're on varsity. And so they just look down on them and go, man, ignorant. That's why every time Jesus is trying to heal, all they care about is, wait, wait, is he exegeting the text right? Wait, wait, what's his use of Hebrew? I don't like that illustration. He's going, I'm trying to heal someone. Totally unaware of compassion and kindness. There was no concept of grace to them. It was the farthest thing from their mind. And you'll see them come across people time and time again and do nothing to relieve them. And guys, this is what a self-righteous, arrogant heart becomes. You've got to be really careful. You become so proud in what you do and your religiosity and how you live and you make all these laws for everybody else and they don't, they don't live up to your laws. You tell them to follow you and not Jesus. And you look down on them and you criticize and you slander, Right? Here Jesus is showing, hold on, hold on. Why do, why do I exist? I mean, why does the Sabbath exist? For compassion, mercy, kindness. We look to the, the good of our brother. We're keenly aware of grace, which makes us humble people, which makes us look outward and not outward in a healthy way and not inward. And then Jesus says this profound statement in verse 5. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> Guys, as they are arrogantly arguing with Jesus... Jesus makes this radical claim to clarify everything for them. And he's the only one who can do this. He pulls the God card, okay? He's the only one who can pull the God card. I know we love to do that, but he's the only one who can do it because he is God. He says, hey, firstly, I'm the son of man. Okay, son of man, he's grabbing that messianic divinity from Daniel 7 that he was with God from eternity past. He was going to break into human history, be ruler and king. He's saying, that's me. Hey, you're looking at him. Okay, I am the son of man. I, and then he goes, and I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Because if he is the son of man, then he is the maker of the Sabbath. He's going, I made this thing. I designed this thing. You're looking at God in human flesh. Do you think I not have authority in the trump card on what happens on the Sabbath? Like I say what happens. Not You, you don't say what happens. You don't addendum to what I did and how I made it and how I intended it. Just profound from Jesus. He's saying you're looking at the Son of God. And the reason this is so huge is because for Jesus to claim that he's the Son of Man and Lord of the Sabbath is to claim that he is God. Now, I know some of you have been wrongly taught that Jesus never claimed he was God. Well, here's a part, okay? Again, where he claimed deity. He claimed 
messianic fulfillment. He claimed that he was God. And the reason that this is so important is he is either a blasphemer or he's God. Right, so you can't fall in this weird place in the middle where, well, he just kind of got carried away sometimes. No, he was either fully God and validates his claims, or he was a ridiculous man who said ridiculous things who you shouldn't even care about. And here we see him appealing that he is the very Son of God, that he is the one who made the Sabbath. And Jesus is also saying something underlying all of this. He's also saying, I'm the truest, mean, truest meaning of the Sabbath. Like, I'm your rest. I mean, I mean, the Sabbath is when you, you stop trying to impress God and enjoy God. It's where you stop trying to earn righteousness and enjoy the righteousness that I give you. Like, I am the truest object of worship on the Sabbath. You don't worship what you do. You worship me. Underlying implications are massive here. And Jesus is revealing all of this. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 11, what, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. That was a play off the Sabbath. Look at verse 6. He's going to continue rolling this out. I love this. He's going to continue showing this theme of being Lord of the Sabbath and self-righteousness and arrogance and gospel-centered humility. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there. His right hand was withered. Interesting. Luke's the only one who mentions it was his right hand. I think that's profound, probably because he was a physician, so he really cared about details like this. I think he says it, too, because people use their hands to work. So because he had a withered hand that couldn't operate, then it was just paralyzed, maybe, and shriveled up. Maybe that hindered his family's life and, and getting money for the family. Maybe that was just this guy was really down and depressed, more than just his hand being withered. And the scribes and Pharisees are there, front row seat, where they always are in the synagogue, hearing Jesus preach and teach. And they watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. So they might find what? Not a reason to believe in him, but to accuse him. Isn't that insane? Man, let, let, let's see if Jesus heals this guy. Not so we can celebrate it, just welcome this guy to this, you know, a shriveled hand coming to full form functionality and just, just praise God for that, but see if we can get accuse him and indict him. <laughs> but Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. So on another Sabbath day, Jesus is preaching and teaching the synagogue. He comes across a man whose hand is withered, and he's in a predicament right away. If he heals the man, it's considered work, and so he's dishonoring the Sabbath. Right? So it's the first part that's wrong, okay? This is the predicament that Jesus is in. And I told you, according to the, the writings, doctors couldn't heal or alleviate suffering. So they realized this wasn't life-threatening. So Jesus can't heal this guy. That's one of our addendums to the Bible. You're not allowed to do anything kind to him. You're not allowed to look out for him. And notice why the Pharisees are watching him. <laughs> not to see if he would heal and then believe he's the Messiah. That's never why they wanted to see him heal. It's never why they were wanting that. They were sitting there going, heal him, heal him, heal him. Why? So we can indict you. So we can accuse you. We don't like, we're the teachers of the day. We're teaching what's righteous and unrighteous. We teach what's moral and unmoral. You don't come along and then teach some other form that's given. We love, we're proud, we're arrogant. No thought of compassion in their hearts. And I love this. Jesus knew what they were thinking. John 2, he knows and perceives every thoughts and intentions of the heart and mind. He always knows that. He always reads minds. And see, the Pharisees didn't say anything. The man doesn't ask Jesus to heal him. Jesus 
perceives the thoughts of the Pharisees, sees a guy with a withered hand, and says, hey, buddy, can you come up here for a minute? He's going to do a great object illustration. Can you stand with me in the synagogue? Because he knows that these people, these Pharisees, see this man and are ready to indict Jesus. And Jesus wants to teach a lesson. And I love it because you know what Jesus does here? He's going to ask a question that you can't answer. <laughs> it's what he always does. I love it. He's like the, that guy that answers every question you ask with another question that's better. And you're like, ah, you get your synapses just crossfire in your mind. You know what I mean? This is what he does here. This is great. Look at what he says. And Jesus says to them as he's standing with the man in the middle of the synagogue, as he knows what they're thinking, Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to, them, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. <laughs> so Jesus says to the man with a withered hand, front row, I'm looking at David right here. Hey, hey, come on up here. He comes up here, right? We're standing there, arms around him. And then sarcastically, he looks over at the Pharisees sitting in the front. They're always sat in the front. They're sitting in the front, and he, and he just goes, hey, by the way, guys, um, you know the law really well like the back of your hand. So if I heal this guy, is that a good thing? Is that lawful? Or should I just destroy him? Should I show no compassion, no mercy for him? Is that better? Is that more lawful? So <laughs> I love it. You're a Pharisee, right? Gotcha, right? They're sitting there, and they're thinking to themselves here, this is so brilliant, because they're going, okay, well, I mean, yeah, it's lawful to help somebody. But then if he does that, we can't accuse him. But then again, if he just shows indifference to this man and we say, yeah, it's better just to destroy someone and we let him go take a seat, then that just exposes our compassionless, wicked hearts. So what do they say? Nothing. They just twiddle their thumbs. They just sit in the front row going, they can't say anything. Because neither answer is going to help their cause. Either one's going to expose their religiosity and their arrogance and their self-righteousness, or one's going to let Jesus do what is absolutely lawful, and it'll get away with something they want to accuse him of. So, so Jesus answers brilliantly. They're twirling their thumbs, and, and, and here's the thing. I think in this moment, I think they were well aware of the Old Testament scriptures that clearly reveal that what they did in adding to the Sabbath was not something God was pleased with. If you go to like Isaiah chapter 1, you, you can... It's not going to be on the screen. I was just thinking of this this morning. Isaiah chapter 1. Here, here's God is aggressively going after the same superficial religiosity to the people of Israel that he's doing here to these Pharisees. And look at what he says in, in Isaiah chapter 1. Okay, just go down to like verse, um, verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? But no more vain offerings, incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure the iniquity of solemn assembly. Just, just there's no sincere heart worship. Right, you're externally looking great, but inwardly you're a train wreck. Whitewashed tombs, he'll call them later. 
right? Here he keeps going. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Okay, now here's the turning point. What should you do? Profound here. What does he say? This is Old Testament. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What do you do when, what do you do when, what am I about? Alleviating burdens, alleviating suffering. And you're so consumed with your Sabbath rules and rituals that you come in here so arrogant, self-righteous, seemingly clean, and your heart is desperately wicked and sick. You can push all the way to, ch- to chapter 58 and see. Just push through to chapter 58 and see this again. He reiterates it, and then we'll get back to Luke. Chapter 58. Go to like verse um, 6. Is this not the fast that I choose? 58 verse 6. To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? What does that sound like? First Samuel 21? Yep, answer is yes. And bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and healing shall spring up speedily. You keep reading. What, is, what, is, what are we seeing here? <laughs> I think they were well aware of how God felt about them creating unnecessary, impossible, burdensome rules on the Sabbath. I think they knew that. I think they were well aware of that. And they were blinded to it. Even knowing this truth. And there's such deep, arrogant pride that there's no way, there's no way they could say, you know what? Jesus, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe the Sabbath is a day to show kindness and compassion and mercy. Self-righteous person can't admit and can never humble themselves and can never say, I'm wrong. And this is why you need to notice Jesus' question is filled with implication. What is he really saying here? He's looking at him going, who's really honoring God? Me who wants to heal this guy? Or you who wants to kill me? What's really unlawful? Killing or showing compassion? You see that? Weighty. It's huge. So is this man standing awkwardly still, right? So with a withered hand going, can you heal me? Like, I mean, I'm still standing here. Why are you you dialoguing with these guys? I don't care what they think. I just want my hand to be healed. As they're standing there awkwardly in the middle of the synagogue, Jesus goes, hey, hey, give me your hand, and he heals them on the spot. Profound healing, right? Now, here's what's amazing. You would think the very next text in Luke would say, right after he does this, as the synagogue is welling with excitement, they can't believe that this guy's hand that was withered and totally dysfunctional and unoperative, that it's now fully functioning. They, they watched it happen between their eyes, b- before their eyes. You'd think that the very next text would say, hey, the Pharisees and scribes go, man, may- maybe we're wrong about this guy. Like, like maybe this healing, this supernatural work, I mean, maybe he really is the Messiah. Maybe, maybe man, maybe we should repent and believe. What does it say? The complete opposite. Verse 11, 
Look at this. Insane. But they were filled with fury. (laughs) They were filled with rage, filled with anger, filled with hatred, and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So as the people in the synagogue are exploding with excitement, can't believe it. The Pharisees are filled with rage. Mark's gospel tells us that this is when they plot how to kill Jesus. Matthew's gospel will go on to say that they, they grabbed the Herodians to help. You know the Pharisees hated the Herodians? So you see, they, they hate Jesus so much, they're willing to link arms with enemies to try to get him out of the scene. What are we seeing here? Don't miss what we're looking at. We're seeing how delusional, dangerous, and damning pride, arrogance, and self-righteousness are. That it will rot your soul. That the church is a hospital for sick people. The church is not a place that we're all righteous, we all have it figured out, and, and so we show up to tell everybody else how to figure it out. But that's not why it exists. And if we operate that way, church at Bergen will fall apart. Other churches will fall apart. We'll become divided, dismissive. And you see this amazing thing here with these Pharisees. They become so obsessed with how others live and not how they live. They're blind to compassion in their indifference. And so what happens is you start playing God. You sit as judge over people's lives. You don't sit as the created to be judged by him. And so then you list out, just like the Pharisees, eat this, tie this, Sabbath this, whatever. And as soon as someone doesn't operate the way you think you should operate, you act as the righteous judge and come down on them instead of being keenly aware of grace going, walking in humility, saying, no, I, and you're unaware of compassion. I, I say this all the time. Religiosity, self-righteousness, grows you in arrogance, decreases you in compassion. I mean, the people that are just, just no fun to be around, right, are those who just think they're a big deal in self-righteous, right? They're just, they're just angry all the time. And, and Jesus paves the way for a different type of living because this is what happens when grace invades your heart. And this is why it's such good news, right? Because we all have Pharisaic tendencies. So if you're in this room and you're either an unconverted Pharisee where you just blame Jesus for everything and all the problems are God's fault, you've been sitting as creator, as judge, looking down on everybody else, or whether you're a converted Pharisee who you've been keenly aware of grace, you've been slipping through the cracks, you've been kind of building up your own resume, forgetful of the grace you were shown, here's the good news for you. Does grace break through the hardest-hearted Pharisee? Absolutely. Look at Paul. Look at Paul. I mean, a guy who was just trying to kill Christians came to be saved by Christ, love the bride of Christ, and give his life for the bride of Christ. That's what grace does. So if your heart falls into those spaces, the issue is you are lacking in your concept of grace. You are becoming more forgetful of the righteousness given to you that you didn't barter for, you didn't earn, you didn't purchase. That Jesus said, I'm just going to give it to you as a gift. You can't earn it. No righteous works will make you more righteous or make you more holy. Or make you a better church member, right? Profound. <laughs> and so instead of a heart that says, hey, I'm really obedient, but I'm passionless and heartless, says I'm driven by the grace of God 
to have a big heart and big passion for the things God loves, for the things God wants. Now, what's amazing is we're only in the sixth chapter of Luke, and we already have the official response from everyone, from the religious elite, kill Jesus. I think in Mark's, it's like chapter two. Like you get to like chapter, you just start reading, whoa, they don't want to kill him? He, like, he was just born, you know? Like, it's just, it's just insane. The response is kill him. And I, I just want to say, maybe some of you are going, man, I can't imagine how they'd want to kill Jesus. But I wonder how many of us functionally act that way. Because, because here, here's what, here's what, what kind of happens is whenever we prefer to play the role of creator and not the created, whenever we prefer to play, play the judge and not the one who will be judged, what happens is, is as you start living, as you start operating in that way, and as you judge over people, anything that infringes on your likes, your wants, your idols, you want them as far away from you so nothing infringes on those things so you can live how you want to live. So here's what I'm asking. I mean, maybe some of you are functionally saying, well, I don't want to follow Jesus if that means I have to hate my sin. I love looking at pornography. Wait, that means that I can't enjoy that lust anymore? And you'd rather kill Jesus and have him done away with and enjoy your sin and rot in that sin that will kill and destroy and not look to the one to free you from that bondage to offer life, joy, and hope. To free you, right? I mean, some of us are going, man, I don't, I, wait, wait, wait. I, what about my rights? And this is how I, I believe marriage should be. This is how I believe this should be. This is how, right? And as soon as Jesus, like, well, let's just kill him. Let's just annihilate him. Let's just get him out of the scene because I don't want him infringing on anything of me. And so instead of wanting to kill your sin as a Christian, you really want to kill Jesus. And so we just need to ask God regularly, man, man show me, reveal the spaces in my heart where really, I, really I, I'm, I'm kind of joining them in a sense. Where I'd, really, I'd really rather keep living this way and not, a, not abide to what you say is good, hopeful, not, not look at the way you designed life to be and how I should operate my, in my marriage. I'd much rather just remove you. I want to operate arrogantly. I don't want to go get help. I don't want to go get counseling. I don't want to you know, expose my problems, man. I just want Jesus out of the scene so I can kill him and just enjoy the way I'm living. And, and Jesus just reveals this in our hearts. And so, guys, the answer, it's all, what is it? It's sin. It all comes down to sin, sickness of our hearts. So the answer for you is not to become a radical legalist and follow every rule. The answer is not to become a crazy libertine where you just, you know, abuse the grace of God and do whatever you want. Just say, well, he's gracious. It's not about morality. It's not about what you do. It's not about you being super religious and abiding to rules or being totally irreligious and doing away with rules not about any of that because this is fundamentally what the pharisees were missing is that the sabbath was a day to stop working and rest in the finished work of jesus it was a time to stop trying to impress god and show him your resume and enjoy god and the righteousness he gives you stop trying to merit righteousness by doing all your accolades and enjoy the righteousness that he gives freely in christ so you're free to love you're free to show compassion you're free to give you're free to have joy you're freed from all of those things. 
profound here because, listen, the truth is Jesus is the only one who lived the perfect life. He's the only one who died a substitutionary death for you. He's the only one who could possibly take the wrath of God towards sin in your place, take it all upon himself, just like the leprosy. He touches it, he gets involved in it, he puts it on himself, and then he rises again and gifts you righteousness. He's the only one who can do that. And so we lean into that righteous judge and we don't become the judge. We lean into that precious promise and we don't try to make ourselves righteous and it's every day. So let me just say this as as we pray to ask God to help us in these spaces of our hearts. You know, I want to be very careful that we don't start criticizing the Pharisees too much because if we do so too much, then we become one, (laughs) right? That was hard for me studying this week. I'm going, man, SMH, right? And just so you guys know, I realize I didn't clarify what that means. It means shaking my head. I had some of you guys write going, you used that last week, and I just didn't even know what. We just sit there shaking our head going, those Pharisees, how self-right. How? Be careful, because as we do that, we become just like them. And remember that there's only one. There's only one who will be in the position of righteous judge, and that's Jesus' job. And he's the only way to be made right with God. Let's ask him to remind us of that and grow us in grace and grow us as a faith family that loves him and is unified and And understands this. God, we understand that we are tired of our pursuit of attempting to earn what can only be freely by given by Jesus. God, forgive us when we turn anything, even a Sabbath, a day of rest, into ourselves looking better, more righteous. God, reveal the spaces in our heart that need correction, need refinement, need realignment. Father, we're sinful. I'm sinful. We're bankrupt apart from the free grace that cannot be bartered, can't be bought, can't be contracted out. It's a covenant you offer that's solely based on what you do and not at all on what we do. God, may we treasure the righteousness that we have in the person and work of Christ and not the righteousness that any of us do for it is, you say, as just dirty dish towels. God, may you grow up this church to a people that are humble, learners, lovers of compassion and kindness and mercy and looking for the, to the good of our brother and sister. God, may you, pay, may you protect us from self-righteous hearts. May you expose in us where we need to confess and repent. God, we're so grateful that you deal with us daily not based upon what we do or our shortcomings or our failings, but solely based upon what Christ did on our behalf. That you can see us as righteous, declare us as righteous, solely based upon that work. May that change us, not into begrudging submission, but joyful obedience, because we get to pursue you, because we get to live this way, because we get to grow in humility, because we get to grow in patience, because we get to grow more into the shades and glories and image of Jesus, your son. And God, as we observe the Lord's Supper now, may we treasure the cross, treasure your sacrifice, treasure your body that was broken, your blood that was shed, that made us new, apart from anything we did in Jesus' name, amen.